Welcome back to the podcast. This is Charlotte Crave and Technical Director here at Evidence for Faith. We are continuing on the road to Emmaus this week. As always, you can help support this broadcast and keep it free by donating online at evidenceforfaith.org slash give. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org slash give. You can also check out our learning website, which has a bunch of other resources on it. And don't forget to also share this podcast with others so they can find us. Um, And with all that, here is Michael on the road to Emmaus. Hi, welcome to Evidence for Faith. Um, it's your host, Michael Lane, coming to you as a podcast today. As we continue um, into, we've just started a series on the road to Emmaus. It's a series I wrote um, on the road to Emmaus, uh, Messianic prophecies of the Old Testament, showing how Jesus fulfills these as we go through this this Bible study. This is, uh, as we've mentioned before, there's around 80 major prophecies of the Messiah, uh, the suffering Messiah in the Old Covenant or the Old Testament. And we're looking at these starting in Genesis, which is where we're at today, starting in Genesis and going through to Malachi, we're gonna see passages dealing with Jesus, actually dealing with the Messiah, which Jesus fulfills all these. And as we mentioned in the introduction, to fulfill all of these prophecies, for one person to fulfill each one of these prophecies is miraculous. It's beyond scientific probability because mathematicians have determined that for one person to fulfill all of these prophecies, the odds of someone doing that is 1 to 10 to the 250th power, whereas in in mathematics and physics, we see that anything beyond 1 to 10 to the 50th power is uh, scientifically impossible by chance. So this is a miracle as we go through this. this. This whole study is talking about a miracle that Jesus did in fulfilling these prophecies of the Old Testament. It's a fascinating study. I hope you've got your Bible with you today. If, if so, I want you to open up to Genesis chapter 1. And if you've got a notebook to take notes with, that's going to help you out too. Um, if you want to study along with us here, or if you're typing on a computer, you can do it that way too, or whatever means of recording information, because we're giving you a lot of information. Yes, this is a book that I wrote, but it's not available yet uh, for publication. It's getting re-edited at this point, and we hope to have this out before the series ends um, and uh, or get it out very soon afterwards uh, so you can all have a copy of this phenomenal um, type of Bible study that we have here of the, the different messianic prophecies of the Messiah. This cements your faith that Jesus is indeed the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, as we go through it. So I hope you're ready to to pump some neurons here as we get ready to go into this, as uh, we start with Genesis chapter one. And I just wanna, this is sort of an introduction more than a prophecy, this first thing I wanna mention here. And that's in Genesis chapter one. And I just wanna show you a comparison of something. Remember, we're looking at Jesus both, which we know is in the New Covenant, the New Testament, and how he is there. And also we, we see him frequently now in the Old Testament also. And I want you to see a, 
a similarity, a comparison, if you will, between two passages. Uh, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and John's gospel, chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to see some very interesting things. Notice the similarities between these two verses. One is in the Old Covenant, one's in the New Covenant. The whole point, both of them are shouting out um, that Jesus is God, as we see this. He's the creator of all things. In Genesis 1, most people know this verse, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's pretty simple. Like I say, most people have memorized that. Even those who are not Christians don't even go to church have heard that verse probably many times. Now, skip over to John chapter 1, verse 1, and we read something very similar. It says, in the beginning, just stop right there, the exact same way Genesis starts. God starts off the word uh, as Moses is doing these writings. He starts it off with in the beginning. Um, and in John, John starts off his gospel, same exact wording, only it's in Greek, in the beginning. Was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Now, that is a fascinating statement because John is using um, the word, word, um, which is the Greek word hologos here, and it's used to describe, when, when you think about this word, it's talking about an intelligence um, uh, of giving, describing some type of an intelligence, of, of utterances. Well, that's what we have here. God is an intelligent creator, designer, and it's used, this word is used sometimes to describe when God utters, when he talks, when he speaks. So we have this. In this case, we have Jesus in his pre-incarnate state, who will become carnate later on when he's born of the Virgin Mary and, and speak as God as he goes around for three and a half years doing his ministry, but he is thus being God. You see, John's gospel, this is what the point I'm trying to make here as we start this, John's gospel um, is not a biography. None of the four gospels are biographies. We have a lesson on that. Um, they're not biographies, they're portraits. And John's portrait is talking about um, how Jesus, how the Messiah, when he comes and appears, the Messiah will be totally God. And that's what his, his whole portrait is all about. Um, John does not use parables in his gospel. He only records seven miracles. Um, we have much of his teachings, dialogues, uh, interviews, and things that we see in his gospel. But John tells us at the end of his gospel, the reason he wrote it was that people would believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing in him, we can have eternal life. And that's this whole thing in a nutshell. That's what we're talking about here. Well, John's gospel is showing that uh, the Messiah will be totally God. Um, Luke's gospel shows that he will be total, that he will be man, he will be a human, but John is saying that he's going to be also God. You'll notice there's no birth account in the book of John. God, John's gospel has no birth account whatsoever. Uh, the closest thing you're going to come is where it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, verse 14 of the first chapter. 
that's the whole Christmas story right there in one verse. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word took on human flesh and then tabernacled or dwelt and remained and communicated with us. That's what John is saying here. So John's Gospel is showing the people that the Messiah will be indeed God, he will also be a man, and he will also come and be the intercessor between God the Father and fallen man, uh, and that by believing we can be saved. But you notice, too, uh, in Genesis we have, in the beginning, so we have the time thing in both passages, Genesis and John in the beginning. Um, we have God at the beginning, and in John we have God at the beginning, and then it says something else. Um, in Genesis it says God created the heavens and the earth, and in John it says all things were made through him. And who's him? The one who is called the Word. And who is the Word? The one that becomes flesh, in verse 14, and dwells with us. It's Jesus. Jesus is, is God. That's John's Gospel. I just wanted to point this out to you, just showing you the similarities of how Genesis starts out and talking about who God is and then how John portrays him also with almost the exact same wording is what you see in Genesis. So we see the Messiah will be, uh, from the book of Genesis in the Old Testament, the Messiah will be God. That's, that's part of this whole thing here. But that was just a little intro uh, is getting into this. Now what I'm going to do as we continue this is I'm going to show you different uh, passages. We're going to do a couple here this morning uh, or during this period. And I'm going to show you, um, the way I'll do it is I'll number give you a number um, as we track like these 80 uh, prophecies. And this first one, this will be number one, and the passage that we're going to look at to see a messianic prophecy of the Messiah is Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And that's our first prophecy, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Now, in each case, what I'm going to do is give you a title of each one. So you can write down the reference, you can write down the title if you're keeping notes on this. So Genesis 3.15, I call the purpose. The purpose. This is the first messianic prophecy. And it's interesting that this prophecy comes at the moment of the fall of man, when sin enters the picture and the entire cosmos is cursed. That's when this prophecy, God states this prophecy. And in Genesis 3.15, it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Now, that's our passage. And I find this fascinating because this is telling us, for one, this is a suffering Messiah, a suffering Messiah, because it says, you will bruise his heel. Um, there's two characters being discussed here. One is Satan, the enemy, the adversary, which is what Satan's name means, the adversary, and then the other one, which is going to be the Messiah, um, the anointed one later on. Um, so those are the two characters. But the thing is, one is going to get crushed. In verse 14, the verse right before, um, God is talking, in this case, it is to Satan, who he is, um, who is cursing, of all the beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go. Um, and this is a curse. And it even says, cursed are you above all the livestock. So he is cursed. Satan's kingdom is cursed. But the Messiah, in, in defeating Satan's kingdom, will suffer. That's what this is talking about. Now, did Jesus suffer? Of course he did. 
just to give you a few examples, um, starting in the book of Matthew, uh, when we see Jesus being born of the Virgin Mary. And then very shortly after this, we, we find a king trying to kill a king. Remember, Matthew's gospel is all about the kingship of the Messiah. So we have a king being born. You have a birth account. That's important. For a king to be born, that's noteworthy. So it mentioned, Matthew is going to mention a king being born. He also is the only one of the four gospel writers who talks about how a king tries to kill a king. Herod tries to kill Jesus. We see this. So the attempt to slay Jesus, that's not something light. That's, that's a suffering Messiah. He has to, to flee to Egypt uh, to escape. Also, another passage where we see where Jesus is, um, is suffering. How about the temptation? The temptation, you see in different Gospels, um, Jesus is 40 days in the wilderness being tempted. Um, that's a suffering Messiah. That's not a fun time um, of going through that. Or, or how about, um, let's take a specific one. How about John uh, chapter 8, verse 59? That's when the mob of Jews pick up uh, uh, stones. They, they want to stone him to death. Um, so Jesus is, his his life, his career has a lot to do with suffering. He understands suffering. Or, or how, let's pick another one, John uh, chapter 13, verse 27. This is the betrayal. The betrayal, when Judas betrays him, and then what happens? His disciples flee. They don't even help support him or anything. He's left alone. That's another sign of a suffering Messiah. Or Not even to mention the scourging that he would suffer at the hands of the Romans, or uh, the nails and the cross, um, death, all of these. This is a suffering Messiah, a suffering Messiah. And even putting a on his head, the crown of thorns. Uh, by the way, let's just pause for a second here. I want to give you something very interesting about this. As I explained once before, there's major prophecies and there's minor prophecies. We're primarily focusing on the major prophecies. But I know, because when I teach this lesson, I often get asked right away, in the usually during the introduction, can you explain what a minor prophecy is? Sure, here's an example of a minor prophecy prophecy. In the curse, um, if you are still with me in Genesis chapter 3, if you look at verse 18, as God is cursing um, the cosmos because of man's rebellion against him, he says, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Thus, a symbol of the curse, the fall of man, the symbol of, of sin, destruction, uh, strife, disease, fear, everything. The, the symbol of this are thorns and thistles. Um, if you've ever given roses to a loved one, um, you got to be careful. Um, used to be they always had thorns on them. Now you can get thornless roses. Wow, how cool is that? Uh, my very, very first job I ever worked at and got paid was working for a, um, a florist. And I was a flower arranger, so flowers would come in in buckets and stuff. And I remember um, hauling out big, you know, bundles of roses, and sometimes getting my fingers poked 
um, and my palms and my hands poke by grabbing these things because there's thorns. Um, I've often, uh, when I lived in Illinois, used to keep thorn, uh, roses around my house. I you always like to have roses around. I love roses. Um, and they have thorns, and I've been nailed by thorns. Or if you've ever been out blackberry picking or raspberry picking, what do you run into? You run into thorns. Um, and there's sticker bushes and thistles and stuff that are around. Walking on bare feet, sometimes you get hurt by those. So it is a symbol. Uh, thorns and thistles are a symbol of the fall. And it's mentioned right here at the fall, God curses using thorns and thistles. Now, if you ever wondered, why did Jesus have a crown of thorns on his head when he was crucified? Was it just a decoration? Well, God doesn't do things without a purpose. God has a purpose for everything. He, he just doesn't do random. And so this is a design. Having a crown of thorns when Jesus is paying the price for the curse, they place the Romans unwittingly fulfilled a minor prophecy that thorns and thistles have to be involved in this, that Jesus has to bear those, and they make a crown of thorns and press it on his head. That's what you call a minor prophecy. Most people have never heard of this one. They don't study this one very often because it's a minor prophecy. We focus more on the major ones a lot of times as in this study. But I just wanted to give you this because a lot of times I do get asked, can you give me an example of a minor prophecy uh, dealing with the Messiah? Yes, here, here's one, that the crown of thorns. So that's what we're talking about here. In any case, this passage is talking about that Satan's kingdom is going to fall. The Messiah's role is to come and put down the rule of Satan and the fall of man. He is to do this. Um, this is the Messiah's purpose, victory over evil. And like I say, verse 14 shows that his kingdom is going to fall because um, he is cursed um, and God is going to get rid of all this. Uh, for now, we're living in a an age of the cursed world. It is still going on. Um, and as it tells us in Romans chapter 8, God, because he is God and can, can do this and nothing happens without his knowing it, he can use the bad parts of the world to bring glory to himself. And he does this, and that's in Romans chapter 8. You can read that if you want to, to go on for that. But that's our first messianic prophecy. And let's go to the second one. So, ready? Here's number two. Number two, the passage is Genesis chapter 9. Chapter 9, verses 26 and 27. Genesis 9, 26, 27. And I entitled this one, The Blessing of Noah's Sons. The Blessing of Noah's Sons. Now, this is the first prophecy that we're going to see, because there's going to be others coming, declaring the family lineage, the genealogy, if you will, of the Messiah. And if you have your Bibles and are watching along with me, you can read. Again, we're using the English Standard Version throughout this entire study as our primary source. And it says, Blessed, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Now, to understand this prophecy, 
you got to understand the nations that are taking place during the Old Testament. And these are the descendants then of Noah. I do believe that the Bible is true concerning Noah's flood. It was a worldwide flood. It was a catastrophe. What the early earth looked like before the flood, we have no idea. Um, I think the separation of continents and stuff probably took place very likely could have happened during the flood. Um, God could have moved things uh, very quickly um, in causing water to flood and rain to come down and all sorts of things. But I do believe it's a historic event that did take place and it was worldwide. I mean, you see fossils all over the, all over this planet. So that shows, and, and fossils of aquatic creatures, in fact. So we know that there was a, a global flood. Now, during the, the flood, there's only one family that survives, and that's Noah's family. And afterwards, the whole world is going to be repopulated by this one family. And he has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. So to understand this prophecy, we got to look at what nations came from those three descendants, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now it starts off, this, this verse in verse 26 says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. So Shem is mentioned first. He is also being blessed by God. So this is going to be um, the, the chief line. This is the major one, the, the, the one that gets the, um, the majority of the inheritance, if you will. It's the most important one. Now Shem, if you follow genealogies and stuff, Shem is the ancestor of the Hebrew nation. All Hebrews trace their ancestry back to Shem. But not just the Hebrews, the Chaldeans, those who lived over in the area of Babylon and stuff, the Chaldeans were descendants of Shem. So were the Persians um, also from that area. And what is today, present-day Iran, um, you have the Assyrians. The Assyrians um, are descendants of Shem. They were the people in the, in the area, uh, northern area of the Tigris and Euphrates and um, in present-day Iraq. Um, and you have the Syrians, the Syrians, the difference between Assyrians and Syrians. Both of those nations are descendants of Shem. So that's the first group. Now, on your column here, let's make like three columns or whatever you're doing. Uh, the second one is Ham. So what nations came from Ham? Ham is the father, as it mentioned in this passage, of Canaan. Canaan. So the Canaanites. The Levant area in geography, uh, the Middle East, the Holy Land, if you will, that area there, these are the descendants of Ham. So it has the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hittites were descendants of Ham, as were even the Egyptians. The Egyptians are descendants of Ham, and so are the Amorites. The Amorites, and there's others that are other minor nations that were in that area group, grouping also, but those are all descendants of Ham. Then you have the third son of Noah, and that's Japheth. And Japheth, his descendants, uh, what nations he, he uh, gave birth to, were the Greeks. Um, so this is going to be more to the north. His descendants moved to the north. You have the Greeks. You have the Thracians, the Thracians, um, the Romans, uh, even the Russians. All of those nations and even northern Europe, which was Gaul, the Gauls, all of these people here are descendants of Japheth. And so there's where you have the three sets of uh, groups of nations. Now, how is this messianic? Well, 
This is talking about the lineage of the Messiah when he comes. He's, he's going to be born of a woman. We got that in Genesis chapter 3 in the first prophecy. He's going to be born of a woman. No question about that. Um, Jesus has to be born of a woman to represent the human race. He can't have a human father because then he'd just be an ordinary person and he would be born into, into sin. But instead, his father was God himself. And so God himself makes him totally God, yet he's, as a human mother, he's totally human. Uh, don't ask me to explain this. Um, it, it's something we just have to accept. Uh, 100% and 100% equals 100% here. I, I just can't explain it. But um, he had to be um, the son of God. He had to be born of God uh, to inherit God's characteristics. And that's why the father, the mother, we get the human aspect. The father, we get the title and all the inheritance comes through him. So he has to have a father. But that was the first prophecy. We're in the second one now. So if he's born of a woman, well, what woman from what nation? That's what this is dealing with. Jesus is a descendant in the line, obviously, of Shem, because he's Hebrew. Um, so he's in the line of Shem, as are, later on we're going to see, Abraham and David are also in this line. They were Hebrew. And Jesus will come, and I like this because it says in this passage, he will dwell in the tents of Shem. He's going to dwell. He's going to come and dwell with his people. And that's exactly what the Messiah does. He doesn't come and just reign over the entire earth when he comes as the suffering Messiah. He comes to his own people and dwells with his people, um, and which Jesus, of course, being Jewish, um, Jews were descendants primarily of Judah, and so he's a descendant also of Judah, and he dwelt with the Jews. So we, we see this. Jesus will come and dwell with his people. The Shemites, then, thus, are the chosen race through which God is going to enter the world. So that's the chosen race for this. Um, but the key point of this passage, the Messiah is going to come from the line of Shem, be both man and God, and give us the doctrine of salvation. This is all coming from this aspect here. So that's this call, that's this prophecy, the second one, which leads us into a third prophecy. Let's go to the third one. So if you're keeping notes and taking notes on this, we're now in prophecy number three. We're still in the book of Genesis. We're gonna be in that for a while because there's a lot of Messianic prophecies in Genesis. Um, and I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 12 verse 3. Genesis 12, verse 3. And in this one, this prophecy, what we're going to see, um, entitling Genesis 12, 3, the call of Abraham. The call of Abraham. Again, this is dealing with the lineage, the genealogy of who the Messiah is going to come through. You see, the Jews are, Moses writes this down and gives it to the Jews, and it's kept in, um, in the Jews learn and memorize these scrolls and these stories. And part of this is telling the Jews too, or the Hebrew people, I should say, how are you going to recognize the Messiah when he comes? Well, you're going to be able to trace his, his lineage because that's what God is giving us at this point. And this Jesus line, if you want to call it that, becomes clearer now. We just saw he comes in the second prophecy having to do with Shem. Now it's coming from Abraham. And Abraham um, is from the land of Ur, which is over where the Chaldeans uh, were living, and he's going to be the first Hebrew. The Hebrew nation forms from him. So it says in Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you, 
And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So what do we see here? What is this passage? Well, this is God talking to Abraham and telling him things. This verse speaks that the Messiah is coming directly now through the line of Abraham, who is a descendant of Shem. So it's, we're getting more information about how we're going to be able to trace the Messiah. And it says here that all the nations of the world are going to be blessed through him. Indeed, all people of the earth are blessed because of Abraham. Why? Because Jesus is a descendant of Abraham. He's a Hebrew. If you don't believe me, go to the book of Matthew. Look in chapter 1, look at verse 2, where we have the genealogy of Jesus, and you're going to see Abraham right there. And so we see that um, Jesus, because of him, I feel blessed. I am blessed because I have eternal life through Jesus Christ, my Lord. And many of you listening to me can, I hopefully, hope can all boast that same blessing. And how many other blessings God has given us through Jesus Christ? Well, Jesus is a descendant of Abraham. So all the world is blessed through Abraham. That's what this is talking about. So um, all the people are blessed by Abraham. Even Paul picks up on this. Paul, when he's writing to the Galatian church, if you want to skip over and look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, you can follow along here, because there, here is a prom, um, this, this concerns this promise stating that there's only going to be one Son of God that will bless all the nations. That there's not going to be multiple sons of God coming out and blessing the nations, though there are some cults today that teach that. Uh, no, that's not what this is saying. God is saying, no, there's going to be one. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, we read, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Paul picks up on this, this Abrahamic covenant that God is making between himself and Abraham that all the nations of the world will be blessed through him because of the Messiah coming directly from him. That's what this is talking about. And there's just going to be one Messiah. Yes, I have said before, there are two Messiahs mentioned in Scripture. They're both the same person. There's the suffering Messiah who was Jesus when he came, but when Jesus returns, we have the second Messiah. When he comes back, he is now going to be the victorious warrior, judge, king, Messiah. And the thing is, we have one Messiah. There's just two portraits of him that we're seeing. First time he comes, he's suffering. Second time he comes, victorious warrior, judge. It's the same one. It's not multiple Messiahs. There's not multiple Christ. No, there is one. And Paul brings that up to the Galatian church. So, we have um, one more we're going to try and get in here uh, in this lesson, and that's going to be the fourth um, prophecy. So if you're keeping your notes here, we're at number four already. Wow, we're just flying along, aren't we? Um, some of these go fast. Some of these go slow. Uh, some lessons will only be able to go through one. But I want to hit one more here before we leave, and this is in Genesis chapter 14. So Genesis 14 and the verses are 17 through 20. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to that, Genesis 14, 17 through 20, and you can follow along as I read this again out of the English Standard Version, um, as we see this prophecy, and instead of being a verse, it's actually a number of verses, but this one is really interesting. I entitled this one, Melchizedek 
king of Salem. Yeah, that's a fun name to spell, Melchizedek. It's M-E-L-C-H-I-Z-E-D-E-K, Melchizedek, king of Salem. This is taking place, just to set the scene, this is taking place during the time of Abraham. So Abraham is is here at this point. Now he's being called Abram, um, but this is taking place with him and a guy by the name of, obviously, Melchizedek. So Genesis 14, 17 through 24, and it says, um, well, I've got the wrong chapter. Here we go. After his return from the defeat of Kedor Leomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And Blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Now, you might be wondering, what in the world does this have to do with the Messiah? The answer, plenty. This is a major prophecy. And uh, as we see this, uh, I also want to tell you, just to start off, some theologians really disagree with this. Um, with this whole character of who Melchizedek is. You're not going to find everybody agreeing on the same thing here because um, some theologians say that Melchizedek was actually Jesus in a pre-incarnate state who was living in Salem. Salem is Jerusalem, so it's the same place on Mount, um, Mount Moriah there. Um, and acting, he was acting as the high priest at the time of Abraham. Now, we, that is true. Melchizedek is a person who was a high priest at the time of Abraham living at Salem. There's no mention, uh, no question about that because it states that directly right there in the Bible. But whether he was actually the pre-incarnate Jesus or not, there's where the dispute happens. Because some say, no, this is not him. Others say, no, it sounds like it is him. Abraham even gives him a tenth. Isn't that like a tithe that we give to God? So some people make some um, very interesting uh, arguments on both sides of this. Well, what I've come to believe and by studying the New Testament, my conclusion is that Melchizedek is actually um, a symbolic form of the Messiah. You see, in Scripture, we're going to see this as we go through the series too, when you come across certain people in Scripture, um, they are totally human, so they're not the Messiah, but their life, the way that they're described in Scripture, symbolizes what the Messiah will be like. We can see some, some characteristics of the Messiah, some prophecies of the Messiah by a person's, um, their character and the way that they live. Uh, if I just confuse you, let me just take you to a simple one you might be able to catch here really easy. Boaz in the book of Ruth. Boaz. Boaz, in that short little book of four chapters, there's not one thing ever mentioned that Boaz does wrong. It appears that he is sinless. Now, we know that he's not sinless. It's just there's no sin recorded. And he, the whole point of Boaz is he redeems Ruth. He's the kinsman redeemer. 
which when we get to Ruth, we're going to get into this prophecy in depth. But you see, Boaz is symbolic of who the Messiah will be. Another example that I can give you is Daniel. Daniel, in his book, we read about his life. There's not one thing ever said of Daniel in his book at all that he did wrong. Not one sin. I mean, that's uncommon because almost everybody, it seems like, in the Bible does something wrong at some time. I mean, David, well, (laughs) there's quite a few there. Um, Somebody always, people always seem to mess up. But there are certain characters that don't, that appear to be extremely godly. And in cases like that, like in Boaz and in Daniel, they are prophecies, their their lives are prophecy of who the Messiah will be. And in Daniel's case, though he never did anything wrong that's recorded, we know that he was human and that he did sin. But there are certain aspects, when we get to the book of Daniel, you will be able to see that Daniel is like a a symbolic form. There are symbolisms that exist in Daniel that also apply to uh, Jesus as the Messiah. So that's what we're talking about. I believe that Melchizedek, though I know some will disagree with me on this, I believe that Melchizedek is actually, was a godly man, a very godly man. There's never anything negative mentioned about him. Thus, that makes me think that he's one of these symbolic characters. And he is a priest, a high priest, it says, a high priest. That's important because he is a priest. And the thing is, being a priest, we think of the priesthood happening after Abraham, or I'm sorry, after Aaron. And Aaron's not even born yet. So here is a high priest of God before Abraham's even, uh, or before Aaron and Moses even come into the scene. They're not even born yet, but he's the high priest for God. Now, where do I get some of this information? Where can I learn more about this Melchizedek? Believe it or not, you go to the New Testament and you go to the book of Hebrews. The writer of the book of Hebrews, whoever it was, um, I don't think it was Paul. The style of the writing is so different than Paul's other letters. Um, I I don't think it was Paul. Um, I agree with some of our early church writers that it might have been Apollos. I don't know. No one really knows. Um, If God wanted us to know if it was important, he would have told us. So it's not that important. It's what the content of that book is. It's important. But in any case, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 6, 7 particularly seven and a little bit in eight, you're going to see uh, the writer of the book of Hebrews is comparing Jesus to Melchizedek. Yes, Jesus being compared directly to Melchizedek. And what's uh, the writer of the Hebrews is talking about, how Jesus is now the ultimate high priest, surpassing the type of high priesthood that Aaron was. He is the ultimate high priest uh, living in heaven today and, and serving as the ultimate high priest even in heaven today for us. And the writer of Hebrews, we don't have time to go through all of it. You can read it yourself. It starts in chapter 6, goes through all of chapter 7, and some of the descriptions go into chapter 8. We see the writer describing Jesus as the Messiah, as a type of high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And so he is a high priest for God, and he's mentioned. Let me just read you a couple of verses out of this Hebrew passage. If you want to look, turn to Hebrews chapter 7. I want to read the first three verses. Uh, We're not going to read the whole passage, but this will give you enough here to understand this. So in Hebrews chapter 7, and reading the first three verses, like I say, it starts actually in verse 6. Or I'm sorry, in chapter 6. We're not going to start there. We're going to start right where... 
uh, that leads off in chapter 6 where it introduces him where it's, well, I'll start there in verse 20 of chapter 6, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, chapter 7, first three verses reads, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Stop here for a second. That's what Melchizedek's name means. It means the king of righteousness, which adds fuel to the discussion that this is a pre-incarnate Jesus. They use that because he's called the king of righteousness. Well, a lot of names in the Bible actually have the name God right in it, um, but that doesn't mean they're God. No, I don't think that's what this is actually saying. Continuing, the king of righteousness, and then he is also the king of Salem. That is the king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Wow. Isn't that confusing? Oh, wow. Um, that, I just find that fascinating, that he is a priest forever. So you can see where the idea comes that Melchizedek could be Jesus. Uh, but I want you to see something. Close examination of the text in that last passage. It's verse 3 that a lot of people, oh my gosh, this, this is Jesus. But notice what it says here in verse 3 of chapter 7, but resembling the Son of God, resembling the Son of God. It doesn't say he is the Son of God. He resembles the Son of God. I think that part of the verse puts it into perspective. This Melchizedek, whoever he was, um, the king of Salem, king of righteousness, king of peace, um, there in Jerusalem, um, serving this, Abraham honors him in such a way and everything, but I believe that he is not Jesus himself, but one of these precursors of Jesus in character. And that's what I see here. The scripture is just totally silent on Melchizedek's early life. It says he has no father, no mother. Wow, that sounds interesting. We don't get information about him. The only conclusion we can agree on, though, is that the author of Hebrews, I mean, everybody will agree with this, the author of Hebrews uses him to explain the role of Jesus as being the high priest today. He uses Melchizedek to describe Jesus today. We get that. Now, some churches, like I say, because of this elevated position, um, will say that this is Jesus and that we can actually worship him as Jesus. And there are some cults, or I, dare I say I said it, there are some cults, there are some, I think, misled churches and groups that actually I have come across a couple in my life that actually um, pray to Melchizedek and stuff. That is not right. You don't see that any place in Scripture. You don't see it anywhere. Um, I don't think he can be elevated to the level of worship because it says resembling the Son of God. Um, and we are not to worship him. Um, now, it, it doesn't say, now some people will say, well, Abraham worshiped him. He gave him a tenth. Well, no. Abraham, it says, honored him. Honor and worship are two different things. You can honor a king. You can honor a prince. You can honor a prophet. You don't, that does not mean you're worshiping them. 
that was totally forbidden. There were some great kings of Judah that were not, people still did not worship them, but they honored them. So if you examine scripture carefully, you will see, for one, we're only supposed to worship God. That's it, period. Abraham honored Melchizedek. There's no mention here of him worshiping Melchizedek. Only God deserves that honor. But it is interesting, isn't it? The similarities between Jesus and Melchizedek. How interesting. Well, our time is gone for this lesson here. Uh, we've got through the first four, and we'll pick up in the next lesson. Um, I hope you stay with us on this, and I hope you're enjoying this, and you, uh, you got to see some new things. I'm praying that the Holy Spirit will just uh, teach you things more uh, about Jesus, how awesome he is, that he truly is the Messiah, and that we can have salvation in his name. Thank you so much for joining us, and um, thank you for your prayers and, and your support that you give us for Evidence for Faith, that we can help people learn about Jesus, the Messiah. Because, folks, that's what this is all about. So until we meet again in the next lesson, take care and God bless. I hope you enjoyed that episode. A big thank you is due to our donors for making this ministry possible. Once again, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org give and help us keep this broadcast free. You can also support us by sharing, subscribing, and leaving a review on this podcast. If you'd like to hear Michael live, you can check out our bookings calendar at evidenceforfaith.org. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org. And on that note, this is Charlotte signing off. I'll see you on the next episode.